so thankful to you for blessing us with your word recorded so that we might learn, so that it might instruct us, so that it might inspire us. And I pray for my brother Raj as he shares from his heart that which you have dis- deposited something into. God, help him to speak with the authority from on high. And may we learn from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. Thank you. Okay, hi guys. Um, would you turn to Acts chapter 19 and put your finger there? We'll get there in about 10 minutes. Is um, Elder Benny here? Yes, okay, great. So the last time I was here on the pulpit, um, after it was on Mission Sunday and after the sermon, Elder Benny told me that the sermon was too short. So let me assure you that you will not have that problem this week. Uh, and for the rest of you, if it goes on a bit too long, just complain to him, okay, not to me. Okay, so the, um, the title is How to Start a Riot. And some of you may be wondering, wait a minute, we don't actually need a sermon on this because we Christians seem quite good at stirring up trouble all the time anyway. Uh, because it seems like every couple of months we seem to get into trouble in the media or out there with somebody or another, right? Um, this was in February last year in um, NUS, National University of Singapore, where, where I've been working for a while. And um, this is a poster put up by the Campus Crusade for Christ, which is trying to recruit Christian students to go to a mission trip to Thailand. And the bit that I've highlighted, it says, But did you know Thailand is a place of little true joy? Buddhism is so much a part of the Thai national identity and permeates into every level of society and culture that only about 100 Thais accept Christ each year. Um, this did not go over well, so it elicited a lot of protest from the um, NUS Buddhist Society that went all the way up to the senior administration of NUS and to the Ministry of Home Affairs. And of course, everybody scolded Campus Crusade for Christ. You know, so insensitive, so arrogant, you know, you can have your religion, but why do you need to go around insulting other people, especially the Thai Buddhists who are not here to defend themselves? And so, you know, um, CCC got roundly condemned and they, you know, sheepishly took down the posters and apologized and all of that and and kind of got forgotten. But you know, this is the kind of thing that seems to keep happening, like almost once every year, right? Uh, Back in 2009, there's this couple that was um, charged with sedition for distributing Christian flyers. In 2010, there was Pastor Roni Tan who got questioned by the ISD because of comments that he made on the pulpit. And so we're all kind of aware that this kind of thing happens quite often. And the core question goes something like this. How do we Christians relate to the rest of a multi-religious society, to Singapore? And if you think about it, we are kind of pulled in two directions, right? On, On one hand, in church, we hear about the need for evangelism and sharing your faith and sharing Christ and we get excited about this and then we go out and when we share we realize that it's not that simple because we're not bringing our faith into a place where there is zero faith we're bringing our faith into places where there are alternative faiths competing faiths and people don't take to that very well and what they want is for you to kind of you know shut up and keep your religion to yourself and so how, how do we deal with that and um, at least in part I'm grateful that this is not the problem that only we are facing only now. It's not a new problem because it is the same dilemma that was faced by the early Christians and part of which we're going to look at in the book of Acts now. Okay, so in the first century, so this is the time of Jesus and the Gospels and the early church and Acts, um, most of the Mediterranean was uh, controlled by the Roman Empire. 
And um, in order to keep control of such a large area with such diverse peoples, right, the official policy of the Roman Empire was religious tolerance. And what that meant is that, you know, wherever you are, you can worship whatever god you want, and that's fine. But just don't challenge the empire and don't bother other people. And that, was, and that seemed to work quite well. Except, in about the middle of the first century, this bunch of Christians showed up and they started spreading and converting people everywhere they, they went seemed to stir up trouble. And in the book of Acts, uh, Richard Chia spoke about this very briefly last week, but it's a, it's a kind of coherent whole. Right in the beginning, um, Luke, when he writes the book of Acts, he writes in chapter 1, verse 8, he records Jesus' words, you know, you will receive uh, power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's precisely what happens in the rest of Acts. In chapter 1, the Holy Spirit comes, Pentecost. Chapter 2 to 7, you've got the witness in Jerusalem. And then chapter 8 to 12 in Judea and Samaria. And chapter 13 to 28, um, to the ends of the earth, essentially to the center of the Roman Empire. And as this is happening, as the Christians are expanding in ever-widening circles, there are all these tensions that you know begin to show up within society. And when that happens, Luke explains in part how those tensions happened and how they dealt with it. And that's probably something that we can learn as well. And so the text that we're looking at kind of falls within that part of the text. And that's the angle that I'm going to take in it. It's about the riot that occurs in the city called uh, Ephesus. And in, in my view, this is probably one of the most exciting and, and colorful and vivid uh, descriptions in the book of Acts. It's one of the best stories. But it's something that we want to interpret with a lot of caution. And at least for two reasons. One reason is it's, it's history, it's a story. Um, Luke is telling us what happened. He's not necessarily telling us what we should be doing. And the other thing that makes it a little bit difficult for us to interpret is that in most of the other stories and acts, Luke puts a sample of the apostles preaching. So you've got um, you know, this disturbance in uh, Jerusalem, and then you've got in the middle of that story, you've got Peter who's preaching, or in... Um, the Areopagus, as Pastor Kokfai spoke about two weeks ago, he's speaking in Athens, and in the middle of that, you've got uh, Luke recording how exactly Paul responds to the Athenians. And so when we're looking at those kind of texts, we can anchor our theology in what the apostles are preaching. But in this particular text, it's a bit weird, because what we have is the whole text, almost all the spoken words are spoken on the lips of non-believers. So how are we supposed to draw our theology from that, draw our ideas from that? So anyway, this is what we're going to do for the rest of today. I'm gonna, we're going to go through the text together, and then we're going to go through the text one more time. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to point out a couple of the historical, contextual things that hopefully should give us a, a fuller, more rich understanding of exactly how the story unfolds. And at the end of that, I'm going to give two of my reflections based on the text about how we as Christians should be relating to a multicultural society. Notice that I've deliberately called it a reflection and not an exposition. Basically in part because we need to be a little bit tentative when we're interpreting texts that are basically um, a description, not necessarily a teaching. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. So first part, you know, looking at the text. So I'm going to read this out from um, the ESV. <coughs> So just kind of a look at your Bible, and I'd like you to kind of follow along with me. So Acts chapter 19, verse 21 to 41 in the ESV. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, 
After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And after having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in, very, in similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quietened the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and, not, and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, there are the proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And, we had, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. It's Acts 19, 21 to 41. This is the word of God. Now, I said I'll tell you my two reflections at the end, but I'm going to tell you very briefly what they are now, and then we'll get to that a little bit later. So how should Christians relate to a multi-religious society? And two clues that we get about this within the text. That we are to proclaim that there are no other gods, as Demetrius characterizes Paul's preaching. But also, as the town clerk notes in verse 37, we are not to blaspheme other gods. And I'll get back to this a little bit later. So let's go through that text one more time and I'll kind of point out a couple of things here and there about understanding what, what actually happened in Ephesus. Okay, so um, right in the beginning, verse 21 onwards, now after all of these things, all of these events happen, this particular text that we've read out, this 
account of the riot in Ephesus. This is kind of nested. This is part of a larger account of Paul's ministry in Ephesus that stretches all the way from chapter 20 to chapter 18. Sorry, chapter 18 to chapter 20. Um, let's go down to verse number, two, number 22. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Paul himself stayed in Asia for a while now. At least some of you may be thinking, Paul was in Asia? That's awesome. Did he ever like come to Singapore or have Nasi Lemak? And the answer to that is no, he did not. Because whenever in the New Testament we read the word Asia, what it's really referring to is to um, this area, the Roman province that was named Asia, which is now in present-day Turkey. So no, Paul did not go to India or Nepal or China, etc. Um, and so that is Asia. And let me go back one slide. And Ephesus, you can see, I don't know if the mic will stretch. Ephesus is, okay, not tall enough, but it's right over there. And it's the leading uh, city of, uh, of uh, the province of Asia. Okay, all right. And so you see that when the ruckus all starts, right, the riot starts, everything seems to be revolving around this alternative goddess called Artemis. And um, this is the most common representation of Artemis. I don't know if this is kind of allowed in church, but basically she's usually presented with lots of breasts. And uh, the reason why she is is because she's the goddess of fertility. And by implication, she's not only the goddess of agricultural fertility, but of also of economic productivity and of wealth. And so really she's worshipped as the goddess of wealth. And she had a huge following in Ephesus. And I'll get closer to the details why in a while. And so Demetrius and his fellow tradesmen, they had much to lose from Paul going around teaching that gods made with human hands are not gods. Why? Because the temple of Artemis in, um, in Ephesus at the time was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was one of the largest structures in the world. It was the center of commerce and tourism and all of much of the Mediterranean all come to Ephesus in order to pay tribute at the, at the temple. And within the temple, there was this rock that was apparently a meteorite that had fallen from the sky. And some people found that meteorite and said, this looks just like the image of Artemis. And other people said, no, it doesn't, but never mind. They still put it in the temple and it was worshipped. And it attracted people from all over um, the Roman Empire to come and worship and ask for wealth and and prosperity at the temple. And when people made the pilgrimage and worshipped God at the, uh, worshipped Artemis at the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, they would then go back bringing along these small replicas of the temple, which is probably what Demetrius and the tradesmen were making and they were selling to these tourists. So I want you to think about how significant the temple was in Ephesus at that time. And just think for a minute about what that might mean in Singapore. Can you think of a large structure a center of commerce and tourism, which makes a lot of money for a lot of people. Any ideas? Okay, I'll give you three clues, okay? Clue one, two, one, two, three. Okay, there you go. So we'll kind of leave it there and move on. Right, so it's that important an institution within Ephesus that Paul was apparently threatening. So what did Demetrius do? He gathered together all of these people who were making money off of this, whose business depended upon this tourism to Ephesus and with people visiting the temple and then taking back shrines of the temple. And Demetrius is afraid that if Paul 
turns away many people from worship of Artemis, he's going to start losing his business and so is everybody. And that basically it's a threat to his economic well-being, threat to his wallet. And when you pinch somebody's wallet, they get very, very mad. And that's why Demetrius is mad. Although when he made the case to the rest of the tradesmen, he tells them it's all about you know, how our goddess is going to be uh, deposed from, from her glory. And so Demetrius makes this case. And you know, we don't actually know what Paul said here. We only have Demetrius's words about what Paul said, that he said that gods made with hands are not gods. But a little bit later in chapter 20, we have Paul's account of what his ministry in Ephesus was like. And this is from Acts 20, 21, 22. 20 and 21, I mean. And these are Paul's words. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This was Paul's ministry in Ephesus that made a lot of people very mad. And so... Demetrius makes this case, he riles up a lot of people, and Paul is not the only effective speaker, because apparently Demetrius is as well, and he manages to stir up the whole of the, the, the city into this huge uproar, and everybody grabs, not Paul, but Paul's friends, and they run over into the, into the theater. Now this is the modern day ruins of the theater in Ephesus, and at the time it apparently was able to hold like 25,000 people. And so this is a huge meeting, this is a huge riot, but in one sense, you shouldn't just be thinking of it as a riot in the sense of the, what's the speaker's corner? Hong Lim Park, is it? Or Hong, it's not necessarily that kind of riot. It's also a little bit like an emergency town hall meeting because the, the, the theater in Ephesus was used not only for these kind of, when people want to cause a riot, but was used as a normal place where people would go in and air their grievances. And sometimes when a spontaneous meeting like this took up, they're kind of, declare that it is a formal meeting and take minutes and pass resolutions and do stuff. So in one sense, it is like this line. It is like a formal town hall meeting. And so this happens. And in from th verse 28 to 34, you've got this description of all the confusion that occurred during that time. And so Paul wants to go in and Paul is stopped by the Asiarchs, the high-ranking officials and the local um, elite in uh, Ephesus. And then uh, some people are crying out one thing, some people are crying out another thing. And then this Alexander and the Jews try to get up and make a defense. Now, sometimes we read this and we think, man, that's great, good for Alexander. He's coming to Paul's defense. But actually, they're probably not. Because what these guys are doing is, uh, this is Alexander and the Jews. And what they're probably trying to do is distance themselves from Paul and the Christians. Because this is a pagan city and they're all mad about these people who seem to be preaching against their goddess. And the Jews, who are obviously a, a prime suspect for doing this kind of thing, are going to get walloped by the Ephesians as well. And so Alexander basically tries up and he probably wants to say something like, guys, you know, that's Paul and those Christians. They're not with us. We're, we're different. So that's okay. So if you're going to, you know, persecute them, that's fine. But, you know, we're, we're not with them. And so that's what Alexander would like to do. But unfortunately, he get, doesn't get a chance because for two hours, he's shouted down by everybody going, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then that's when the town clerk steps in. Now, again, we read Town Clark and we think of this, you know, little old uncle with a balding pit sitting behind a typewriter is doing stuff, but it's not that kind of cl Town Clark. Town Clark, in this context, is probably closer to something like your local MP or to the mayor of a, of a constituency. So he was the guy who was supposed to keep minutes during the time that these kind of unofficial meetings occurred and would then communicate with the Roman Empire's authorities. And so this is what 
um, the town clerk, this is the argument that the town clerk makes. He says that men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know about the city uh, of the Ephesians having uh, being the temple keeper and of the great stone of Artemis that fell from the sky? And what he's saying is, guys, chill, relax. Right? Because everybody knows that we have the temple, we've got the stone, that the image of Artemis that fell from the sky. Everybody knows this. We don't need to be worried that Paul is going to damage Ephesus. Because Paul is not going around interfering with what we're doing in the temple. He's not committing sacrilege in there. And Paul is not going around calling us names or calling Artemis names or, you know, or, or blaspheming her. And so that's okay. But even though Paul is not a threat to Ephesus, you guys, if you are rioting now in here, and if you're not making use of the proper legal channels to complain about this kind of thing, you're going to trigger the Roman imperial, the Roman empire's government to look at Ephesus and say, these guys are you know, rioting all the time, and then they'll come and lock down on us. And so Ephesus is going to be threatened not by Paul, but by Demetrius and all the tradesmen. And so you guys need to cool down and come back when you know, you've got a proper legal argument to make. And the town clerk saves the day and everybody goes home. The end. Okay, so we're kind of over that bit of it. And I hope that that gives you a, a fuller, rounder picture of the events that happened within Ephesus at that time. And now we're going to go into the last third part. And I'm going to talk a little bit about two reflections that I have based on this text. Again, I want to put down the disclaimer from a while ago that they're reflections. It's difficult for us to draw concrete and certain conclusions from a story. And so the two reflections are basically this. When we're thinking about how Christians should relate to a multi-religious society, Luke gives us two clues in this text and he puts those two clues in the lips of two non-believers, in the lips of Demetrius and in the lips of the town clerk. And the first clue is this, when Demetrius says, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God's made with hands are not God's. Part of the way that we relate to a multi-religious society has to be this, to proclaim that there are no other gods. And the second clue is what the town clerk says. For The town clerk says in verse 37, for you have brought these men here who are, they're not sacrilegious, they're not blasphemers of the goddess. And that's the second clue. And in some part, the way that we relate to a multi-religious society has to do with us not blaspheming against other gods. So let's take each one of these in turn. So the first thing, do we proclaim that there are no other gods? Do we make clear and consistent in our witness that being a Christian, that the Christian faith does not allow, fundamentally does not allow us to simultaneously embrace any other God. Do we, do we witness this clearly and consistently? What, what, what do you think? When you think of the church as a whole, the Christian community as a whole, I don't just mean PPH, but the Christian community in Singapore, do we do, we do this? And my answer to that would be, we only do it when we're in church. We do it when we're in a safe space. We do it when we're on the pulpit. We do it in our cell groups when we're talking to our Christian friends. But we don't really do it 
out in the public sphere. Do you, do you, do you, do you disagree with me or do you share that? Uh, I see at least a few nodding heads, so I, I'm not alone in making this observation. And the question is, why not? Why, why don't we do this? And it's probably a complex answer. There are lots of reasons for that. But I think a big reason that we need to come to grips with is this. It's because we're afraid. It's because we're afraid to make that contribution. Is that not true? Because we, we kind of know, right? We know this. We know that Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. It's Jesus or nothing. We know this. And we know that when Peter speaks to the council in, um, um, in Jerusalem, he makes this proclamation that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And he's talking about Jesus. We know this. But we are afraid to proclaim this out in the world. And the reason why we're afraid to proclaim this, we have very good reasons <laughs> why we're afraid of this. And um, you know this as well as I do. You know, there are powerful forces in our society that would want us to be silent, that would want us to not rock the boat, that would want us to not cause a riot. And that makes me nervous, especially here that makes me really nervous. But I don't have any good answers for this. I don't have any solution for this. But what I do know is that, again, we are not the only ones to have faced this. In the first century, this, the, the disciples faced the same problem. And so this is more from Paul and, uh, no, this is Peter and John in the Jerusalem Council. And so they call them and they charge them not to speak or preach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's a gutsy thing to say. And again in Acts chapter 5, again before the same council called up one more time and you know, they need to deal with this. And uh, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus uh, to his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of things. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit who God has given to those who obey him. We must obey God rather than men. And that's a really, really risky position to take. We, we, we know this. And yet, um, somewhere at the center of what it means to know Christ, what it means to proclaim that Jesus is Savior, that Jesus is Lord, is this line, that when we proclaim that Jesus is King, that Jesus is Lord, implicitly, that means that every other Lord, every other King, every other government, every other authority that would ask us to do something contrary or to not do what Jesus wants us to do, we need to be prepared to say, Jesus is Lord. Even when, when under the threat of harassment or intimidation or punishment or imprisonment or, or worse, um, we need to be ready to do this. And we sing this song all the time, right? Jesus, we enthrone you. We proclaim you are king. But unless we are ready to do that, to say that he is king exclusively, the only king, 
unless we're ready to risk to make this proclamation, we really aren't ready to sing this song. And so that's the first idea. How do we relate in a multi-religious society? We have to proclaim that there are no other gods there. There's no other way. But the second thing is this, that as the town clerk points out, we're not to blaspheme other gods. And again, the question is this, do we do, we do this? Do we speak or act or behave in a way that's disrespectful towards people who hold another belief system or another religion or no religion at all? Do we do, we do this? What, what, what do you think? When, when you think of the Christian community as a whole in Singapore, do we do this? And I don't know about your experience, but in my experience, the answer is yes. We tend to do this. We tend to blaspheme other gods and people who have no god. And again, we tend to do this in safe spaces. We tend to do it, thankfully not here, but we, th- we tend to do it on pulpits or within churches or within cell groups or within private conversations with other Christians. We speak in a disparaging way about other religions, but we don't do it out in the, out in the public sphere, which is probably a wise thing to do. But, but why? You know? Why does that happen? And at least in part, I think, it's this. We don't recognize God or goodness outside of the church. And I've got to put some meat on this. So let me give you three examples of what I mean by this. Uh, the first is, uh, I love this photograph. I was in Myanmar last year in December and, uh, December and January um, for this work-related project. And um, among other things, you know, we saw monks and, 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 and um, uh, Burmese um, Buddhists. And then after that, I came back and I was speaking to this other Christian friend who was telling me about his own trip to Myanmar. He was telling me about oh, these monks in these, um, in these monasteries. You know, they're, they're so satanic because what they do is they keep chanting the same thing over and over again and they have no idea what they're talking about. And I thought that was a bit funny because, you know, if chanting and saying the same thing over and over again is a bit weird, his church happens to sing the same chorus 20 times over and over again, you know, and he doesn't see the irony in, in, in doing that. Um, so he ended up disparaging or critiquing something in somebody else's practice that essentially is not very different from what he was doing every Sunday himself. And we, we have a tendency to do this kind of thing, and, we're, and sometimes we just don't have the insight to see that, that, we, that we do this. And so we, don't, we tend to disparage practices that we ourselves have. Um, second incident that, that kind of illustrates what I mean when I say that we don't see goodness or God outside the church. I was at a um, missions conference about two or three years ago with a lot of other young people who had a lot of interest in missions. And, the, um, and this particular uh, workshop was about the intersection between charity work, humanitarian work, and gospel missions. And we're kind of talking about that. And this is something that I have an interest in that I've been doing since like 2001 in various places in, in Timor and Myanmar and stuff. And, um, and the question that was asked was this. The question was, what is the difference between Christians who do humanitarian work or good work and non-believers who do humanitarian work or good work? And the speaker proposed that the difference was that when Christians do this kind of good works, we're doing it out of love. But when non-Christians are doing this kind of work, they're doing it for their own selfish reasons. And this answer didn't seem to get any blowback or resistance at all from the rest of the audience. But I felt, I felt violated. I felt 
this is so clearly nonsense. From 2001 until now, I've worked in the humanitarian sphere, in the mission, the uh, charity work sphere, in a bunch of places, and I've worked alongside Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and agnostics and atheists and people who don't even care to have a label, all of whom have been engaged in this work out of a deep sense of need to serve their fellow man, out of a great deep sense of charity, goodness, love for fellow men. And we have no right to look at what they do and say, ah, they're just doing it for selfish reasons. But when we do it, we're doing it out of love. It's nonsense. But at least in part, the reason why we end up having to dismiss what they're doing is because, do you, do you remember last, last week, and Pastor Kokfai brought up this text, that this is true religion, true religion, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. If some part of true religion involves compassion and work among the poor and the oppressed and the needy, and we see these people doing work among the oppressed and the needy, we have to recognize that it may not be a saving faith, it may not be a faith that gets them into heaven, but there's still something true and right and real in this. And we need to be able to recognize that. But for most of the time, we, we choose not to. We choose not to recognize good or God outside of the church. Another, maybe even thornier issue is over the last couple of months when there is this debate over 377A, you know, the legalized, the decriminalization of homosexuality in Singapore. Ultimately, that didn't happen, but there is a debate that is leading up to that. And in the midst of that debate, at least in part, if we looked at the way the Christian community responded to this, we refused to listen to what the opposing arguments were, to what the people on the other side had to say. At one small Bible study I was at, you know, the question was asked, do we even need to listen to these people? And, and my answer is yes. Because if we're going to disagree in the public sphere, we need to understand what it is we're disagreeing with. We need to understand. And in order to understand, we do need to listen. And we're only able to listen when we acknowledge that there may be some good or God even outside of our community. And on the whole, the Christian community isn't very good at doing this. So we don't, we don't listen, we don't recognize good and God, and we, don't, and we speak disparagingly of their practices. And, we, and the reason that we do that is because we kind of have this black and white cartoon picture in our heads about what the world is like. And we're, we're Popeye and we're the good guys. And then there's everybody outside who are all the bad guys and everything that they do and believe must be evil. But... We need more colors than this. We need more nuance than this. And if we're afraid that by taking this approach, if we're afraid that if we bother to listen or interact in this way with people outside of our Christian community, that'll shake our faith. If we're afraid of this, then the way to solve it is for us to strengthen our faith, to be clearer about our doctrine and our Bible, not to refuse to interact with them, not to refuse to not to insulate ourselves from these other people. I know that this is a probably a bit shaky kind of conclusion to come to based on the text that we're looking at. So let me 
point you to probably a different way of coming to that same kind of conclusion. And this is what theologians refer to as the doctrines of common grace or the doctrines of general revelation. And what that means is basically that if God created all men in his image, then in some way the echoes of God or good are present even if in some imperfect way in every person. And that means in the Muslim and in the Buddhist and in the atheist and in the person who doesn't have any God. And we need to be able to recognize that and, and acknowledge that. And so you see a hint of this when Paul is speaking before the Areopagus, when he says, when Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's not true religion, but they're religious. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So they were already kind of worshipping this unknown God. And what Paul says is, what therefore you worship as unknown, what you kind of know in a clear, uncertain, un unclear, uncertain way, I now proclaim this to you clearly in Christ. Again, in Romans chapter 2, Paul's writing, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the, Paul, what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. For they show that the work of the law the will of God is kind of written on their own hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secret of men by Christ Jesus God still judges by Christ Jesus and that's the only saving faith but in some way in the conscience in the hearts of people who do not know Christ is written the law of God in some imperfect way. And we need to be able to recognize this. And so, this is kind of my last slide. And I'm at the end. And if you've, you're probably, if you're thinking a bit hard, you're probably thinking, um, you know, Raj earlier talked about one kind of being pulled in two directions, you know, evangelism versus religious harmony. And now I've got a different kind of being pulled in two directions, right? The, both the imperative to proclaim that there are no other gods, to proclaim that Jesus is the only way to be saved and yet at the same time to refuse to blaspheme other gods, to the same time to recognize goodness and God outside of the church and to acknowledge that and to recognize that and give respect to that. And so this is a different kind of tension. But if we are able to do this, if we're able to think in this way, if we're able to relate in this way to, the multi, to a multi-religious society. Would we be, would be better off? Would there be no more riots? Would there be everybody happy to accept our gospel? The answer is of course not, la, nonsense, because Paul apparently did it in Ephesus and he got kicked out at the end of a riot. So you know what, if we do this, we are still going to start riots, uh, but we'll be starting them for the right reasons. That's how to start a riot. That we would proclaim that there are no other gods. And yet that we would refuse to blaspheme other gods. Would you stand up with me? And uh, let's pray briefly. Uh, I'm not going to ask uh, Tim or the worship team to come up because I don't want to implicate you guys if I get into trouble. Um, but we're going to pray briefly. Um, and maybe before that... Um, you know, there's that, there's that song, um, Jesus, We Enthrone You. And um, 
you may not agree with all that I've spoken about today, but at least some of it, at least with the idea that we are called to proclaim Christ is the only way, even if that means being subject to risk. If, if you agree with that, if you agree that we are called to enthrone Christ as king, and that means that we are, there's no other king. If you agree with that, would you, would you sing that with me? And um, yeah, that, that, that's okay. And I have an awful voice, so I, I'm just really hoping that at least a few of you would, would be able to sing that. With me. Jesus, we enthrone you. We proclaim you our King. Standing here in the midst of us, we raise you up with our praise. And as we worship we worship thee and throne, and as we worship thee and throne, come Lord Jesus and take Remember what it means to declare that you are king. What it means to declare that you are Lord. Remember what it means that uh, when you said that you are the only way. And at the same time, remember what it means for your image to be in all men. And that we are to respect that. God, we ask today for wisdom that you'd help us to hold these conflicting truths together in our hearts, that you'd help us to conduct ourselves in a way that honors these truths, that would glorify your name, and that would bring your gospel into a world that needs it so much. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Service is over.